0: It's Friday the 12th of August, 1966. Not long after one o'clock in the afternoon on a warm summer's day in Harrow, London. Three men are cruising in a battered, ramshackle, vanguard estate car. The throaty exhaust rattles every time they go over a bump. John Whitney, the owner, has tied it up with string. But they all know that's not going to last. The rusty old car is on its last legs. Harry Roberts, sitting in the passenger seat, has just turned 30. His bushy, curved eyebrows knit together as he scans the parked cars nearby. The left side of his mouth twists up to accommodate the grubby fingernail he's biting as he scans the streets for what he's after. The last man in the trio has only recently joined forces with Whitney and Roberts. Scotsman John Duddy sits in the back seat, keeping his eyes peeled too. His silver knuckle duster catches the sun as he drums his fingers on a jittering knee. Duddy could do with a pint. He's been drinking a lot lately, especially since his wife walked out a few weeks ago, leaving no one to keep him on the straight and narrow. Whitney, on the other hand, is happily married and would like to stay that way. His wife thinks he's at work. Truth be told, he and Roberts have long been thieving lead and metal, instead of doing an honest day's work. With Duddy now on the team, they've upped their game to raiding betting shops and robbing rent collectors. For their next raid on an engineering works in Northolt, they're definitely going to need a better car. And they're not going to buy one. They're going to steal it. Suddenly, Robert spots exactly what they're looking for. A dark blue 1966 Ford Corsair, parked down a side street next to the tube station, maybe left for the day by a commuter. In a bag at Duddy's feet, there's a set of fake registration plates These match another Ford Corsair completing the fraud. The Vanguard splutters to a halt at the pavement. They'll have to move quick. Whitney's the one with the car-stealing skills. He hurries out of the Vanguard first. Looking around furtively, he heads for the Corsair. Roberts follows, keeping watch as Whitney inserts a piece of wire into the lock of the Ford. He jiggles the wire, but can't work his magic. The wire breaks and part of it gets stuck in the lock. He swears, cursing his luck. It's the third car the gang have tried and failed to steal today. Frustrated, Robert storms back to the vanguard. The thwarted robbers retire to the clay pigeon pub in Eastcote for lunch, a few pints of bitter and a game of darts. Getting back in the car, they plan to head to the grassy common at Wormwood Scrubs. Whitney's not ready to go home yet, since his wife thinks he's at work. Instead, they've plumped for lying in the sunshine and continuing to plan their next raid. Duddy's feet kick at the brown canvas bag containing the fake plates. There's also a stocking mask and some overalls in there in case they need them. But that's not all they've got in the car. In another bag between the front seats are three guns that belong to Roberts. A 38 Enfield revolver a nickel-plated thirty-eight Colt special, and a 9mm Luger PO. All three are loaded. Not that they intend to use them today, of course. They're ready to frighten people during the robbery. Roberts pats the bag as he climbs back into the car. He turns to Duddy and smiles, saying, it's the first day of shooting season. August the 12th. The glorious 12th. The other two laugh nervously. They're not going to use the guns, are they? I'm John Hopkins and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential. The show where we delve into the files of London's legendary Criminal Investigation Department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects, and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history.
1: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
0: It's just after 3 p.m. on the afternoon of August the 12th. School is closed for the holidays, and children are playing on the sun-warmed pavements. The sound of their laughter floats on the summer breeze. On Braybrook Street... A row of neat council houses face the stretch of old oak common known as Wormwood Scrubs. A few dog walkers cross the common, disturbing the birds and insects. Beyond the grassy fields and play parks, the skyline is dominated by the Victorian maximum security prison. A reminder that even on an idyllic day like today, crime and punishment are harsh realities of life in London. On the road between the houses and the common, a battered blue vanguard is overtaken by a Triumph 2000. An arm appears out the window and waves the vanguard to pull over. Both cars stop at the side of the road. The pale green Triumph, a sporty little five-door, is more than meets the eye. In fact, it is an unmarked police vehicle driven by plainclothes officers, known as a Q-car, with the code name Foxtrotz11. Inside, are three police officers from Shepherds Bush Police Station in Uxbridge Road. Prisoners often try to escape from the scrubs, and frequently they will have associates waiting nearby in getaway cars. So it's only natural that a copper's instinct should be aroused when he sees three rough-looking sorts idling in a car nearby. With his keen eye, the driver of the Q-car, 41-year-old police constable Jeffrey Fox, a Class 1 advanced driver, has noticed that there is no tax disc displayed on the Vanguard's windscreen. It is a legal requirement to show you've paid your road tax. He also thinks he might recognize the man driving as a local petty crook. PC Fox remains in the driver's seat whilst the other two members of the crew, Detective Sergeant Christopher Head and temporary Detective Constable David Wombwell, get out. Fox watches in his rearview mirror as the two officers make their way over to the vanguard for the routine stop. Detective Womwell takes out his notebook and leans into the driver's open window. DS Head approaches the other side, but the passenger appears to be ignoring his command to open the window. Fox's gaze drifts over to the common where a gang of kids are playing football. England have just won the World Cup in a thrilling 4-2 victory against West Germany. No doubt they're all pretending to be Bobby Moore and Jeff Hurst. He smiles at their innocence, maybe thinking of his own three children and what they're doing this afternoon. Suddenly, he hears a loud crack. The youngsters stop still and stare over at the cars in shock horror. Fox's attention snaps back to the scene behind him. He looks up in time to see Wombwell stagger back away from the window. The detective sways before claps into the tarmac his face a bloom of red. It takes a moment for Fox to register what's happened. His colleague has been shot in the eye. The force has propelled him backwards. He now lies flat on his back, facing a sky he can no longer see, his pencil still clutched in his hand. Adrenaline surges through Fox. He's frozen with fear. He can't move. He watches, eyes wide, as the two passengers get out of the vanguard the man who had been sitting in the front passenger seat focuses his attention on DS Head. He raises his arm and points a gun towards DS Head, who begins to run towards the queue car shouting, no, no, no. But the gunman has already killed one policeman. He's not gonna stop now. Dead men can't talk. The panicked DS Head is running for his life. Another loud shot rings out in the quiet sunny street. this time echoed by screams from the distraught children. The shot hits DS Head dead center in the middle of his back and he too collapses to the ground. The gunman keeps coming. He stands above Head, who is writhing in pain and panic, still desperately trying to evade his fate. The attacker holds the gun to DS Head's face. PC Fox holds his breath. Through the open driver's window of the Q car, Fox hears a click as the gun jams. The gunman takes a step back, ejects the blank from the chamber. He hits the road surface with a metallic clink. Fox's heart thrashes against his ribcage. He knows he has to do something, but he is immobilized with fear. Although injured, Head tries to crawl away while the gunman is distracted with his malfunctioning weapon. The man pulls the trigger again, but it's another dud. In the interminable moments, it takes him to reload. Head manages to make it to his feet and stagger towards the Q car where he collapses in front of the bonnet. PC Fox, realizing the gun is jammed again, slams the Q car into reverse. The tires squeal as he pistons it towards the gunman in an attempt to stop him firing at DS Head. It's all he can do. The police don't carry firearms as a rule. His car is the only weapon he has. Under threat, The gunman shouts to one of his associates, come on, get the driver. The other man opens fire on the reversing car. The nearside rear window explodes. The bullet whistles past PC Fox's chin. The next bullet shatters the windscreen and the third bullet finds its target. PC Fox falls dead onto the steering wheel. In an horrific turn of events, as he collapses, he knocks the car into a forward gear. With the dead weight of P.C. Fox's foot pressing down on the accelerator, the car lurches forward, running straight over his dying colleague, D.S. Head, who is still lying in the road where he collapsed. The two gunmen run back to their own car and jump in it as it hurries down Braybrook Street and disappears around the corner. The whole incident has taken less than a minute, from the first shot to the eerie silence that now follows. Three officers lie dead in the quiet sunny street, and shocked children stare in disbelief, having just witnessed what will come to be known as the massacre on Braybrook Street. For the longest time, the only sounds on Braybrook Street come from the fateful green police car. The engine is still throbbing, the accelerator still depressed under the late PC Fox's foot. But the sound of the engine is all but drowned out by the squealing of the rear tire, half lifted from the ground and spinning against the tarmac as the wheels turn. The acrid smell of burning rubber fills the air. The body of DS head is caught under the car, veiled beneath a cloud of smoke as the rear wheel keeps spinning. Terrified, children run into their houses screaming. Housewives stand on their doorsteps with horrified expressions. How could something so violent and appalling happen in this quiet street? A lorry driver, who is parked nearby, gets out of his cab and walks over to the Triumph. He hesitates momentarily before reaching his hand through the shattered car window. He turns the key and the engine shudders to a halt. Braybrook Street falls silent. The quiet after the storm. Over at Scotland Yard, the information room lights up with calls. Jumbled reports of a shooting, a car crash, bodies in the road. Patrol cars are immediately scrambled to attend with the call. Braybrook Street near the prison, serious GBH, ambulance called, vehicle concerned, a blue Vanguard with P and J in the index number, direction unknown, no further particulars. Once the first officers arrive on the scene, they realize the full horror of what's just happened. And to whom? Immediately, they broadcast warnings to prevent any more fatalities. Who knows if the gunmen are still nearby? They've already killed three police officers. Who's to say they won't take out any more who get in their way? Less than 10 minutes after the shooting, the investigation has begun under the experienced command of Detective Chief Superintendent Richard Chitty. Now in his 50s, Chitty has seen some things in his career, but nothing like this. He stands in Braybrook Street in his trademark grey suit, a trilby hat hiding his balding head, the brim tipped to hide his shock at the scene. He's trying to observe everything with a policeman's eye, but this is a series of murders that has already cut deep into the hearts and minds of the men of Scotland Yard. These were some of their own. Less than 40 police officers have been killed since the turn of the century, and now three have been shot dead in the space of one afternoon. The horror of what lies before him jars with the birdsong and the butterflies of the common only a few feet away. Colleagues are outraged by the murders. They'll be looking to Chitti to bring swift and thorough justice. It's a huge weight of responsibility. The death sentence for murder has only been suspended eight months previously, but already there are calls to reinstate it. Surely the cold-blooded massacre of three serving officers deserves the highest form of punishment. But before any justice can be meted out, the men of Scotland Yard must catch the perpetrators. Braybrook Street is immediately sealed off to prevent members of the public disturbing the evidence, but also out of respect for the dead officers. They lie where they fell, covered with blankets from the neighboring houses. It's a distressing sight and the attending officers are grief-stricken. When asked by a journalist what happened, one can't contain his tears he replies i can't talk about it i'm too choked up they were my mates police photographers take snapshots from every angle and forensic scientists comb the scene for evidence the home office pathologist is called out and finally the bodies of the three men are removed to the mortuary for post-mortem examinations as the widows of dc wombwell and pc fox and the mother of ds head are informed of their loved ones' deaths, DCS Chitty sends officers house to house on Braybrook Street. Many of the witnesses were children who had been playing on the streets and on the common. It's hard to imagine the sort of nightmares they might have now, but they may also have key insights which need to be gathered quickly before the story is retold too many times. The detectives carefully glean information from the upset youngsters. Although some of the detail is confused and contradictory, the children describe the car, the men, and what happened during the attack. One girl even describes the driver of the car as looking like Bobby Charlton, the England World Cup midfield player. It's a start, but the detectives need more information if they're gonna catch them. Chitty is frustrated. As the news breaks, it sends shockwaves around the nation. The senseless murder of three fine officers in broad daylight on a residential street, leaves people horrified. Not just his own men, but the whole country is looking to Chitty to solve this heinous crime and quickly. But right now, he hasn't got a lot to go on. Hi listeners, John Hopkins here. We hope you enjoy this trailer for Noises' new show, Detectives Don't Sleep. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, with new episodes airing Every Tuesday. What makes a great detective?
1: If you arrived at a crime scene, would you have what it takes to crack the case wide open? Would you spot the vital clue that everyone else has missed? Could you unravel the suspect's perfect alibi? And could you confront a murderer? Introducing Detectives Don't Sleep, the new Whodunit podcast from Noiser. Each week, we'll take you beyond the police tape to shadow the real detectives who worked history's most intriguing cases. You'll be right there, solving a murder on the beaches of the Bahamas, busting neo-Nazi art dealers in the back streets of Europe, and unmasking con men in Beverly Hills. These detectives, they all have one thing in common. They can never truly rest until they've closed the case. Listen to Detectives Don't Sleep wherever you get your podcasts.
0: For DCS Chitty, the first breakthrough comes quickly. 29-year-old security guard Brian Deacon approaches the officers at the scene and asks for a word. He tells them that he and his wife were driving down Braybrook Street when a blue car came hurtling towards them at speed. Deacon, thinking that the car must be involved in a prison break, cursed at the driver and told his wife to take the number down. But his anger turned to shock. As he saw what the car was fleeing from, he says, I came across the first body. He was lying with his feet towards the common. There was blood everywhere. He describes the Blue Vanguard in detail and gives the detectives a key piece of evidence the car's registration number PGT726. DCS Chitty suddenly has something to go on. However, It's Friday evening, and the county council's offices that keep the records of car ownership have already closed for the weekend. Well, that's not about to stop a detective of Chitty's standing. There's always a way to bring a willing office worker back in after hours. Having made a few calls, he is assured that he will have the information he needs before the night is out. Now he and his fellow officers wait on tenterhooks. Just before nine o'clock that evening, The telephone on Chitty's desk rings. The name and address of the car's registered owner is given as a Mr. John Whitney. He's about to get a visit. He's been dreading. John Whitney is 36 years old and lives with his wife Lillian in Paddington. He's already known to the police, 10 convictions for petty theft, and he's already done an 18 month stretch inside. Not long after 9 p.m. on Friday night, there's a knock at the door of his basement flat. Whitney opens the doors to find two detectives. We're making inquiries concerning a blue Vanguard PGT-726, which we understand is yours. Oh no, not that, exclaims Whitney, feigning innocence. He points to his wife, who has come out to see what's going on. We've just seen on the telly about the coppers being shot. He tells the detectives that he doesn't have the car anymore. He'd sold it only that very morning to a stranger in a pub for £15. His wife looks at Whitney in shock and confusion, saying, You told me you'd been to work. You didn't tell me you'd sold the car. What's going on? It's clear to the officers that Whitney is anxious. His hands are shaking and a sheen of moisture has appeared on his brow. Lillian is visibly upset. Whitney tells her, I haven't been to work for five weeks. I had to get some money for you. It all seems very suspicious. The detectives note that Whitney has his thinning hair combed across his balding head, just like the footballer Bobby Charlton. Wasn't that the description the children gave of one of the killers? Not willing to be fobbed off, the detectives say they're going to take him down to Shepherds Bush Station for questioning. Lillian becomes distressed, and says, Please, darling, tell them the truth. But he maintains his silence. When questioned at the station, Whitney adds nothing to what he said at the flat. He insists that he sold the car and he knows nothing about the shooting. But instinct tells DCS Chitty that Whitney knows more than he's letting on. He detains him anyway, hoping he'll crack at some point overnight. Meanwhile, The car's number plate and descriptions of the men are circulated widely by Scotland Yard. Chitty calls in the press to publish the descriptions more broadly, in the hope that some snippet of information, however small, might point detectives in the direction of the killers. In the morning edition, the Daily Mirror shouts, Find these men, but you are warned they are dangerous. Don't have a go. Of course, a stream of information pours in from the public, desperate to help solve the case. As usual, most of it is useless. He can't hold his suspect for too long without charge. So unless something concrete comes in soon, Chitty's gonna have to let Whitney go and they'll be back to square one. Three dead officers and no one to blame. The morning of Sunday the 14th of August brings a huge crowd to Shepherd's Bush police station. They know from the papers that Whitney is being held there. From his cell, He must be able to hear their vitriolic chants of bring back the rope. No wonder Whitney continues to deny any involvement in the deaths of DS Head, DC Womwell and PC Fox. One can only imagine the treatment cop killers will get in prison. He's probably terrified. And Chitty also knows that criminals are often afraid of spilling the beans on their associates for fear of reprisals. Is that why Whitney's not talking? Feeling frustrated? Chitty returns to the information coming in from the public. And it's there he finds the lead he's looking for. A man is phoned to say that on Friday night, he saw a shabby-looking blue Vanguard being driven into a lock-up garage in Vauxhall, near the River Thames. Within minutes of hearing the call, Chitty sends his men down to investigate. By midnight, they've established that the lock-up was rented by one John Whitney. And there's more. Inside the lockup, detectives find the blue vanguard that fits witnesses' descriptions. And in the car, they find three 38 cartridges from a Colt Special, the same gun that was used to kill PC Fox. The police have now linked Whitney to the car and linked the car to the crime. It's all the evidence they need to charge him. DCS Chitty wastes no time charging Whitney with the murders of all three policemen. Knowing that there were two others with him, he is charged under the Law of Common Purpose. This means he might not have pulled the trigger each time, but he was with those who did and so he is held guilty for the deaths nonetheless. Whitney is returned to his cell. With the evening drawing in and the light fading, he sits alone. His nerves are shot. He's got time to think and his future is looking bleak. No doubt he plays the scene of the murder over and over again. He was just the driver. He didn't even pull a trigger. Whitney knows if he gets convicted, he won't ever see freedom again. What will happen to his family now? Why should he take the rap for something he didn't even do? He bangs on the cell door. It's time to talk. In the early hours of Monday morning, Whitney faces DCS Chitty across a table in a sparse interview room and prepares to tell him everything in a new statement. By the end of the interview, Chitty has two names, Harry Roberts and John Duddy. Roberts is known to Scotland Yard. He served in the army in Kenya and Malaysia during the war and learned how to kill there. Since his return, he's carried out hundreds of armed robberies around London. No stranger to violence, he's already served seven years for the robbery and brutal assaults of a 78-year-old man. On that occasion, Roberts had missed the rope by the narrowest of margins because the old man survived, but only just. His accomplice, John Duddy, is originally from Glasgow. He's not a violent man, but has convictions for theft. He's been straight for 17 years, but since meeting Whitney and Roberts, he's become involved in criminal behavior again. Maybe Whitney thinks by giving up the other two, the judge will be more lenient with him when sentencing. He tells Chitty how they'd been planning a robbery but couldn't find a suitable car. Then Foxtrot's 1-1 pulled them over. Whitney says they'd asked some routine questions, but it was when DC Woomwell wanted to see the bag that Roberts panicked. It was one thing being caught for no tax disc. It was another thing altogether being caught with a bag of guns. They'd get 15 years just for having the weapons. Whitney tells Chitty that after the incident Roberts said they would have had to do time for having the guns anyway, so they might as well do time for something worthwhile. When Wombwell leaned into the car to have a look at the bag, Whitney claims Roberts told him to fuck off and shot him in the face. There is a moment of tense silence in the interview room before Whitney continues. He says that Roberts then got out of the car and began shooting at D.S. Head before screaming at Duddy to shoot the driver. Whitney got out of the car and took his documents out of Wombwell's dead hands so that he couldn't be traced. Duddy swore at Roberts, who then threatened Whitney that he'd get the same if he didn't drive, so he jumped back in the car and they made their escape. Every detective listening to this tale is disgusted, thoughts returning to their fallen colleagues. The only way they can deal with the welling anger and despair is by getting justice. And that's tantalizingly close, now that they have the names of the gunmen. One can only imagine the adrenaline-fueled, sleepless night as officers prepare for a dawn raid on the addresses they've been given. The next morning, on Monday the 15th of August, at 5am, police barge their way into the homes of Roberts and Duddy. But their hopes are smashed when neither man can be found. They both made a run for it, Frustrated, detectives turn their attention to Roberts' common-law wife, Lily. Surely she knows where he is. Though panicked, she tells them he came home and admitted what he'd done, then told her he needed to get away. On Monday morning, they went to the army surplus store near King's Cross Station, where Roberts bought camping equipment, some khaki-colored clothing, a primer stove, and a sleeping bag. She asked him where he was going, but he said he hadn't really made up his mind. After buying cans of food from a grocer, they made their way by bus to Epping Forest, where he left Lily and disappeared into the trees. Tuesday the 16th of August, four days after the shooting, is another hot day. Police have now put out a description of Harry Roberts, 5 foot 10, slim, with a quiff of hair and distinctive curved eyebrows. He's considered armed and extremely dangerous. DCS Chitty, is organising a search of Epping Forest when a tip-off comes in about John Duddy, the other suspect who has also disappeared. It appears Duddy's brother has informed the police of his whereabouts. Chitty contacts colleagues in Glasgow and a raid is carried out on a tenement building where John Duddy is found asleep in bed. He surrenders quietly. Unusually, he is transported back to London by aeroplane, handcuffed to two policemen who, doubtless, weren't particularly kind to their captive. On the trip, he makes a statement to one of the officers. I must tell you what happened. It was Roberts who started the shooting. He claims, in a moment of madness and intoxicated from the lunchtime pints of bitter, he grabbed a gun and shot PC Fox through the windscreen. He hangs his head in remorse and mutters, I didn't mean to kill him. I wanted quick money the easy way. I'm a fool. Later, he retracts the statement. At dawn, two days later, on Thursday the 18th of August, the search for Roberts begins in Epping Forest. 500 policemen, many armed, begin searching the vast 6,000 acres. They have police dogs and tear gas guns. A helicopter hovers above, observing and directing. They move through the trees as quietly as possible, watching and listening for any clues of Robert's whereabouts. DCS Chitty has heard about Robert's military experiences and knows he'll have honed his survival skills in the jungles of Malaysia. And according to Lily, he's well equipped to remain in hiding for a long time. He's likely not even in the forest anymore. Chitty knows this won't be easy and he's right. After three days, Officers have covered miles of forest with not a single clue to the fugitive's whereabouts. They're wasting time out here. Chitty calls off the search. Sightings are reported all across Britain and as far as the continent. At one point, Chitty flies to Ireland to investigate an alleged glimpse of Roberts. That too comes to nothing. 16,000 posters are released offering a £1,000 reward for information leading to Robert's capture. It's a lot of money, but no one can claim it yet. Meanwhile, on the 31st of August in West London, 19 days after the fatal shooting, 600 policemen line the route to St. Stephen's Church for the funerals of P.C. Fox, D.C. Wombwell and D.S. Head. It's a cloudy, dull day, The weather echoing the mood of those who've come to pay their respects. The road is filled with mourners as the three flower-laden coffins are escorted by five police motorcycles to mark the five children that have been left fatherless. When the vicar talks of there being no greater love than to lay your life down for your friends, it's hard not to imagine the heartbreak and outrage at the deaths of the brave officers who gave their lives to protect the public. It makes Chitty all the more determined. To catch Roberts and see the justice is fully done.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal
0: formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the
1: world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply.
0: Detectives continue to follow leads and investigate sightings for the next few weeks. But as the autumn takes hold and the cold winter November evenings draw in, there's still no sign of Roberts. How can he remain so elusive? His face has been all over the papers for months. Meanwhile, Whitney and Duddy are given a court date of the 14th of November. If necessary, they'll be tried without Roberts anyway. DCS Chitty is frustrated that Roberts won't be facing the judge with them, but with no new developments, there's nothing he can do. Then, three days before the trial is due to begin, there's a development in the case. It's November the 11th, 1966. In Thorley Woods, near Bishop Stortford, Hertfordshire, Two police officers find a camp in the middle of the forest after a tip-off from a local game hunter. Twigs snap underfoot as they approach cautiously, anxious not to disturb the occupants. It's raining and the ground is already slippery and thick with mud. The camp is a well-constructed framework of boughs and branches covered with tarpaulin and plastic sheeting painted green. A handmade chimney pokes out the roof, connected to an iron stove. There's a stack of kindling, tins of food, a fishing rod, two transistor radios, and a camp bed with sleeping bag and blankets. They even find two suits and shirts folded neatly away. This is the den of someone who knows how to survive in the outdoors. Someone who looks as though they've been living here for some time. Could this be Harry Roberts' hideout? They observe the camp all day and night, keeping out of sight Terrified that Roberts will surprise them on return and maybe add another couple of cops to his kill list. But there's no sign of anyone. Finally, the two officers go into the camp to look for evidence. They take some items to check for fingerprints. When results come back, it's affirmative. Harry Roberts has been here. Very recently. It's November the 14th, and DCS Chitty is sitting in the old bailey on the first day of the trial of Whitney and Duddy. As proceedings begin, Chitty is conflicted. He should be glad that two of the culprits are being brought to justice, but all he can think is that Roberts should be in the dock with the others. As the barristers lay out their cases, a note is passed to Chitty and his eyes reluctantly leave the defendants to see what it says. He takes a moment to digest the news. Roberts has been found. A surge of excitement and adrenaline fills his chest. Maybe you'll see these three criminals tried together after all. He immediately leaves the courtroom, oblivious to the angry stares and tuts as he disrupts proceedings. He's got phone calls to make. He's not going to let Roberts get away this time. Later that night, Thorley Wood is silently surrounded by over a hundred policemen. It's cold but dry, and anticipation hangs thick in the air. They're about to catch the fugitive who killed their colleagues. As Dawn's first fingers pierce the forest canopy, the men move in. He's abandoned his tent, so they scour the woods and local farms for any sight or sound of him. Roberts is likely armed, and the officers have been issued with firearms. This is a dangerous cop killer. Who knows how he'll react when cornered? Tensions are high. Finally. Cautiously, two officers approach a hay store. One of them moves a bale and spots a primer stove and a sleeping bag. There's someone in the sleeping bag. The two policemen exchange glances as they grip their rifles. One uses his to prod the sleeping bag and then jumps back, gun-aimed, anticipating a shootout. Harry Roberts appears from inside, looking thin, tired and dirty. He doesn't look like the terrifying villain that he's become in the minds of the officers searching for him. He says, wearily, as though the past three months on the run have broken him, Don't shoot. You won't get any trouble from me. I'm glad you caught me. Near to his new camp, they find the loaded Luger, the one used to kill DS Head and DC Woomwell. After 96 days on the run from the law, they finally got their man. Roberts comes in quietly. The hunt is over and DCS Chitty rushes to Bishop Stortford police station to finally lay eyes on the man who has killed three of his officers. A new trial is set for the gang at the Old Bailey on the 6th of December, 1966. Finally, all three men will stand trial together. Officers must be hoping that they will get the harshest sentence possible. While Whitney and Duddy plead not guilty to all indictments, Roberts pleads guilty to the murder of D.S. Head and D.C. Wombwell, but denies killing P.C. Fox. Their pleas fall on deaf ears. It takes the jury 30 minutes to find all three guilty of murder and possessing firearms. The judge, Mr. Justice Glyn Jones, says... You have been justly convicted of what is perhaps the most heinous crime to have been committed in this country for a generation or more. He recommends that none of the men should be released on license for at least 30 years. The repercussions of the Braybrook Street massacre were hugely valuable for the force. The case led to more officers being trained in firearms. More importantly, perhaps, you saw the beginning of the police dependence charity, which was founded to support the families of officers killed in the line of duty. Had the triple murder happened three years earlier, Roberts would have hung. While many believed the life sentence was too lenient, no one ever expected Roberts to be released. Though Roberts remained unrepentant about his crimes, he was released after 48 years. His release caused widespread outrage among both police and public, who insisted that life should mean life. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. June 1946, it's Sunday night and PC Arthur Collins is looking forward to getting into bed with his wife Marjorie, but then, The sound of shattered glass. Collins gets into his uniform and hurries across the street to investigate. Encountering three robbers, he orders them to stop. What they do instead is snatch his truncheon away and beat him into a coma. Marjorie heroically intercedes, ripping the aggressor's jacket lapel away, the only clue left behind after the senseless attack. And when local police draw a blank in their hunt, It's time to call in the yard. Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Warrow for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant Roger Morris. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Written by Sarah Moorhead. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound design by Jacob Booth. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Jacob Booth. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McClellan calling.